The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Welcome, everybody, to the July 29th, 2020 edition of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. It's your boy, Justin Robert Young. Uh, Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, uh, We have a Biden-centric episode of the show. Very Biden-centric episode of the show. And, and... I'm not just going to pick on him because he's actually doing things so we can actually critique actions <laughs> instead of uh, uh, fast forwarding conversations that he's had with people over Zoom or deciding whether or not lack of action is indeed the best action. We will discuss the latter days of the VP search. We will discuss how Joe Biden is handling the protester issue slash DHS response, the federal response in Portland, Chicago, and Albuquerque, and some more Biden stuff as well. We also have an awesome interview, and this is an interview for the internet folk. I know some of you guys are internet people, some of you guys aren't. But all of you have been affected by memes. So we got ourselves an actual meme historian. They are on. uh, 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 I had a great time with this interview. I think it was it was excellent. So uh, please, please, please uh, go ahead and stay to the end to listen to that. Before we get started. I do want to just give you a little amuse-bouche, a little uh, hors d'oeuvre, canapes, some might say, for our Biden discussion. And this is an answer. Biden actually took questions. This was an answer that Biden gave yesterday that I both hate and love. And I mean that in order. Let's go ahead and just play the question in full right now. You alluded to this in in your remarks, and I bring it up because polling is bearing this out a little bit, but are you running against President Trump or for President and for Joe Biden? In other words, you alluded to this, but a lot of voters seem to think or are saying that their support hinges on the fact that you're not the president. So why perhaps should they be voting for you and not just against the president? That's why I'm laying out these detailed plans. (laughs) Look, uh, I'm running because Trump is the president. And I think our democracy is at stake, for real. And uh, what seems to be the case is many Americans, those who don't like me and those who do, view me as the antithesis of Trump. And I believe that I am. And I, when I announced, I said I was running because I thought it was essential 
to restore basic decency, the soul of America. But I really meant it. It wasn't, uh, you know, remember I got criticized early on for saying that. Now everybody's talking about the soul of America, decency, honor, respect. The second reason I said I was running is because even back when people were talking about how well the economy was moving, I thought the middle class was still getting crushed and working class folks were hurting badly. All this talk about how happy they were. I didn't see any numbers showing they were so happy because people were getting paid badly. They were being corporate America was overreaching in terms of who they felt they had an obligation to deal with at all. And thirdly, the thing I got most criticized for, and understandably, was I said, we have to unite America. And they said, well, that's just a pipe dream. You used to be able to do that, Joe, but everything's changed. Well, if we can't unite America, we're gone. We're dead. Democracy's dead. It requires consensus. I'm not, that's not hyperbole. It requires consensus. All right, let, let's go ahead and get to what I love and what I hate. First, what I hate. There, when I talk about the, the, the lost opportunity cost of Hyde Biden, it is the inability to set up your own narrative that is divorced from your challenger. As much as you can say that Hillary Clinton was unpopular, Donald Trump's narrative to the people in 2016 was the world is going in the wrong direction. Take a chance on me. I, you know I'm volatile. You know that I'm going to say things that you might not always agree with. But guess what? You putting people in that you always agree with, and that was on the Republican side, be it with the, the feckless conservatives that he was mowing down, or with Hillary Clinton and the Democrats, you've tried them, try me, because things aren't going the way that you want. And that is a solely Trump-centric narrative that can can fit in with a lot of different people, but it's about him. So what I don't like is starting off this question by saying, yeah, I'm running because Trump's the president. Because you're always going to be tied to whether or not people are upset or okay with Trump. And that what I that that's what I think the damage is, is that, Hey, look, Donald Trump is now taking this virus seriously. Whether or not it's too little too late for the people that matter, he's still the incumbent, and we might have a vaccine and good economic news between now and Election Day. If that's the case, and you're literally leaving everything up to Trump, then you are giving him the ability to change the narrative. So I don't like that. And I don't... I don't necessarily buy the like democracy is at stake stuff. I, I just think it it signals to people that are already going to be there, and there's only so much that you can, uh, so far that you can go with that. You're already at the wall. If you're at democracy is at stake, there's not a lot of story you can tell there. It's like the gun is against our head. What are you? What are we going to do? So it's not not valuable. It's just not my, I, I don't think that it gives you a lot of narrative space to play. That's just me. Let's get to what I love though. And I'm even going to replay it. Well, as I said, we have to unite America. 
And they said, well, that's just a pipe dream. You used to be able to do that, Joe, but everything's changed. Well, if we can't unite America, we're gone. We're dead. Democracy's dead. It requires consensus. I'm not, that's not hyperbole. It requires consensus. So now that we're here, and now that he's the nominee, you've got a little bit of clout to play with. And the image you can start to build, the narrative you can start to build, and this, I would assume, is going to be a theme during the Democratic National Convention, now that I think about it, is Biden the healer. Biden had a contentious fight with the primary opponents, and he healed. He won because he healed. It's not really true, but whatever. This is the narrative. He healed the rift with the progressives, and that's why he signed a unity pledge with Bernie. Granted, it's because Bernie got nothing from what he wanted, and the platform is effectively devoid of any progressive change. By the way, when I predicted it was going to be a total garbage fire, indeed that happened this week as a bunch of Bernie uh, uh, delegates have removed themselves from the process. But still, Biden the healer. Biden healed the progressive wound within the party. And now Biden will lay his withered hands upon a tattered nation. And when he lifts them on November 3rd, lo, this American flag will no longer be in pieces. A golden sun will break upon the hillside and we will again be one country the way that we were under Obama. I don't think that it's necessarily true, but I do think that at the very least it does uh, speak to a general anxiety that people have. Politics has become more a part of our lives than we have ever had it before. It is more stressful to us than it ever has been before. And despite the fact that it's had some tremendous benefits, including the fact that more and more people subscribe to political podcasts, ding! By and large, it's brought nothing but agita to America. They are tired of it. They want a president they can just kind of forget about that the media isn't screaming about every five seconds. And you can play into that. If I were advising Joe Biden, what I would say to him is more of the latter part of that answer and less of the first part. The threat to democracy isn't one man. The threat to democracy is our lack of ability to get anything done. It's our lack of humanity toward one another. Trump stokes that. Biden won't. Solid line in the sand and irrefutable. These, to me, are the most powerful themes for Joe. And he's going to have to spin a lot of them. But first! Joe Biden says that he wants to make his vice presidential pick in the first week of August. It is my opinion he will do... Exactly that. Indeed, I believe he will announce 
his vice president on August 1st. That's a Saturday. Here's the reason why. Obama announced Biden on a Saturday, and you might think, oh, come on, you're wasting an entire day's worth of media. Understand that politics operates on a week-long schedule that begins on Sunday during the Sunday shows, Meet the Press, Fox News Sunday, blah, 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 and ends on Friday. They take Saturday off. They take a lot of days off in politics. Anyway, I believe it's going to happen on Saturday. And as we come closer and closer to that date we begin to see some of the uh, some of the stuff heat up a little bit. And so, I believe this will be the last edition that we will do of vetting Biden's possible choices. And the final choice that we are going to vet is somebody that has gained a lot of steam over the last 48 hours, and that is former National Security Advisor, former ambassador to the UN, Susan Rice. I played Huey Lewis and the News is back in time because it is my belief that that is exactly what they want to project with the idea of a Susan Rice pick. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just go back to the good old days? One might say, make America great again. So let's go ahead and do the tale of the tape. Susan Elizabeth Rice was born on November 17, 1964. That makes her 55 years old in Washington, D.C. She married Ian Cameron in 1992, and they have two kids. One of those kids is a hardcore Donald Trump supporter. I would imagine if she were picked, then he could find himself on the Republican National Convention digital stage when that rolls around in late August. In 97, she became the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs under Bill Clinton. In 2009, she became the 27th United States Ambassador to the United Nations under Barack Obama. And then she became the 24th United States National Security Advisor in 2013 under Obama as well. But it is betwixt those last stops that we are going to direct our attention. Because to paraphrase Archer, do you want Benghazi to be a 2020 campaign issue? Because nominating Susan Rice is how you make Benghazi become a 2020 campaign issue. Susan Rice was not supposed to be the national security advisor. She was supposed to be the Secretary of State, replacing the outgoing Hillary Clinton. That was derailed because of how she handled Benghazi. ABC senior White House correspondent Jake Tapper has all the details right now. Jake. Good evening, Diane. Well, Ambassador Susan Rice withdrew her name from consideration to be Secretary of State after weeks of bruising political battles and a cacophony of criticism. I didn't... Uh, want to uh, see a confirmation process that was very prolonged, uh, very politicized. Just weeks ago, Rice, a tough and smart rising star in the Obama administration, was the president's top choice to serve as the next secretary of state. 
but she drew a lightning storm of Republican criticism for repeating talking points from the intelligence community that seemed to critics to downplay the terrorist attack on the diplomatic compound in Benghazi, Libya. And indeed, she did. <laughs> she did downplay it. Now, now look, there is a lot that eventually became of Benghazi, and it was a bone that the Republicans never wanted to let go of. And it's a bone I'm sure they would be thrilled to return to if indeed it had renewed interest. And there would be renewed interest. Whether or not you think that this is a dead issue, when I was reading back all the things that Susan Rice has done, what I didn't read was any kind of electoral office. So in the same way that Trump University is fair game when Donald Trump has no other electoral record, so indeed will every decision that Susan Rice has made. And none have been more public than Benghazi. Real quick refresher course for those that have either intentionally blocked out Benghazi or simply don't remember it. On 9.40 p.m. September 11, 2012, members of Ansar al-Sharia attacked the American diplomatic compound in Benghazi, resulting in the deaths of U.S. Ambassador to Libya J. Christopher Stevens and U.S. Foreign Service Information Management Officer Sean Smith. There was a subsequent attack hours later on a CIA annex one mile away, killing CIA contractors Tyrone S. Woods and Glenn Darty, and wounding 10 others. Now, the symbolism of America being attacked on 9-11 was not the initial thought process for why this attack happened. The initial thought process put out by the government and specifically on the Sunday shows. Remember, the Sunday shows are still important in 2020. They were certainly important in 2012. The face of this explanation was Susan Rice. Susan Rice said that this was not something pre-planned like an attack on America on September 11th would have to be. Instead, this was the spreading of a spontaneous protest, won over a film that depicted Muhammad in an offensive manner. If you don't remember it, uh, it went by a lot of names. The Innocence of Bin Laden, Desert Warrior, First Terrorist, Innocence of Muslims, but the one that uh, was available at the time that allegedly at least went viral enough to make this explanation make any kind of sense was Muhammad movie trailer that portrayed Muhammad, the prophet of the Muslim religion as a womanizing pedophile. Susan Rice and the Obama administration say that the talking points that Rice had when she spoke about this were given to her by the CIA, but Let's hear her in her own words. What our assessment is as of the present is in fact what it began spontaneously in Benghazi uh, as a reaction to what had transpired some hours earlier in Cairo, where of course, as you know, uh, there was a violent protest outside of our embassy mm -hmm. uh, sparked by this uh, hateful video. 
Um, but soon after that uh, spontaneous protest began outside of our consulate in Benghazi, we believe that it looks like extremist elements, uh, individuals joined in that, uh, in that effort with heavy weapons uh, of the sort that are unfortunately readily now available uh, in Libya post-revolution, and that it spun from there into something much, much more violent. So this was a regular angry protest, and then... People with gigantic weapons said, oh, yeah, now it's on, and they went and joined in. Here's Ambassador Rice also on that same day. In the last several days, uh, there was a, uh, a, a hateful video uh, that was disseminated uh, on the Internet. Uh, it had nothing to do with the United States government, and it's one that, that we find disgusting and reprehensible. It's been offensive to many, many people around the world. The video, the video, the video, the video, the video. Of course, the video was proven to be nothing. Like, it was just a weird video. It wasn't Charlie Hebdo. It wasn't whatever. And look, I mean, it's 2012. Maybe we have a different idea of what viral videos can even do uh, and, and the reach of them. And I'm not here to say that Susan Rice lied. You know, she was probably handed intelligence, and then she parroted the intelligence, and that is what it is. And certainly the Republicans have spent an abundant amount of time trying to pin whatever they can for Benghazi on everybody they possibly can. My point is that you are going to hear a lot of this if Susan Rice is the vice presidential nominee, and Biden has to factor that in. Just kidding. He totally doesn't. Because Susan Rice isn't going to be the vice presidential nominee. In fact, we're closing the book on the vetting of possible vice presidential nominees because we already know who the vice presidential nominee is going to be. You know it. I know it. I've been telling you for months. It's Kamala Harris. It was always Kamala Harris. It's gonna be Kamala Harris on Saturday. Right? <laughs> the sun is shining <laughs> and the rain. <laughs> it's over. There is no other pick. Indeed, Politico accidentally slipped and published their note on Kamala Harris being selected, which included a quote from Joe Biden, an as yet heretofore unseen quote about Kamala Harris being a great competitor and a welcome addition to the ticket. But wait, hey, Ryan Lizza of Politico wrote that Susan Rice was surging, that this was not a done deal. Indeed, there were two names that were floated over the past 48 hours. Susan Rice was one, and Karen Bass, the head of the Congressional Black Caucus, was the other. Oh, wait a minute. Why on earth would these names get floated? Well, this is where I gotta give you guys a little lesson on professional wrestling. Wow, and he caught Horowitz with that right hand. I will try my best to keep this short because I know you guys indulging my professional wrestling fascination is something that can be bothersome to some of you. But this is important. In professional wrestling, there is the role 
of what used to be called a jobber and is now called enhancement talent. The role of these professionals is to make sure that they lose quickly to the stars that are featured. Barry Horowitz, who's in the clip that we played just a second ago, is among the most famous. The reason why you have jobbers or enhancement talent is because you want to set the expectation for the audience to know that the featured stars are threats and they can beat anybody. The jobbers, in this case, are anybody. So, if you know for a fact that your featured talent politically is Kamala Harris, then you want to intentionally put out other names that are feasible so you can guide the reaction when you drop the news. Karen Bass? Who's she? Susan Rice? Oh, God, we're going to do Benghazi? Kamala Harris? Huh? She's more famous than Bass. She's not as controversial as Rice. I guess. Notice the names that aren't being mentioned right now. Elizabeth Warren. Amy Klobuchar. Even someone like Val Demings. They are all still rising in power and you don't want to damage them by feeding them to the Kamala Harris hype machine. Jobbers have a role and these are jobbers executing that role. At the end of the night, while everyone else counts the money, they can count the lights. One, two, three. Harris is your VP. People march to the court, try to gain entrance, and have set fires, thrown things, used explosives, uh, and uh, injured police. That is Attorney General Bill Barr. There was a ridiculous spectacle of a hearing that happened yesterday wherein he spoke to both uh, Republicans and Democrats. It was a useless exercise that uh, only serves to reinforce the fact that Congress is broken and there is no shared truth in America. I'm not going to spend a ton of time dissecting it, although we will mention it briefly in our interview a little bit later. What I do find to be interesting is the issue of these protests and specifically the deployment of federal troops via Department of Homeland Security into the Portland protest to in their words, secure the federal building, as the attorney general said before. Now, I said this was going to be a Biden-centric podcast, so I want to focus on Biden's comment on this that came out yesterday. I will read it now in full. I have said from the outset of recent protests that there is no place for violence and destruction of property. Peaceful protesters should be protected and arsonists and anarchists should be prosecuted. And local law enforcement can do that. When President Obama and I were in office, we protected federal property. We were able to do it without the Department of Homeland Security turning into a private militia. And it can be done today, but that wouldn't help Trump's political interests. 
He's determined to stoke division and chaos. It's not good for the country, but Donald Trump doesn't care. His campaign is failing and he's looking for a political lifeline. This isn't about law and order. It's about political strategy to revive a failing campaign. Every instinct Trump has is to add fuel to the fire. And that's the last thing we need. We need leadership to calm the waters and lower the temperature. That's how we restore peace in the streets. End statement. The Trump campaign has been goading the Biden campaign into getting any kind of response. We've already seen television ads of Donald Trump highlighting that Joe Biden is soft on crime and will eventually be led to a position of defunding the police. So Biden has to walk a line. The first thing that he says in that statement is that I am not here for violence. We should be able to quell the violent elements of this. That's not what Trump is doing. What Trump is doing is adding fuel to the fire so he can appear tough on crime. It'll be very curious to see where the Trump campaign goes from here. Because part of what Biden says is local law enforcement can handle it. For the Trump administration, they could say back, cool, let them. Because, by the way, the mayor of Portland tried to appear with solidarity with some of the people out there protesting and he got booed. Because he's the, the, the mayor that was shooting tear gas at him before somebody else started shooting tear gas. So I think for Biden, this is one that you want to stay away as much as possible. But again, if you don't set up a narrative yourself, then you are more vulnerable to the narrative of your opponent. I'll just say that again, one more time. It's dangerous. It's risky. Just saying. Politics. We got some family business to go over. Uh, Last year, around this time, I sent out a survey that fundamentally changed the show. And it changed the show in a way for the better that I had never seen with any podcast that I've ever done, ever. Uh, You guys told me what you wanted, and I gave you more of it. Uh, So... I'm doing it again, Uh, not only because I want to make sure that these last 100 days of the election are the best possible that we can do, but also looking beyond uh, the election and and to see where this show kind of goes from from here. Uh, I I just want to see what the mood of everything is. So the first people to get it will be our patrons. It's going to go out to everybody next week. But for right now, if you if you care about this show and you want to help it continue to grow, then uh, make sure that you're at any level here on our Patreon at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Cheap as one buck, a buck an episode. If you think this is worth a buck an episode, then not only can you help contribute, but also you can help shape the show uh, quicker. You know, because in general, I, I will say, and this is just, you know, uh, uh, it is what it is. I, I got to pay attention to the patrons first. 
because you guys are are laying out cold hard cash and that means a lot to me it means the world so i'm gonna pay attention to everybody obviously everybody's voice matters but uh, uh the patron's voice <laughs> you know it matters just a little bit more because you guys are the most hardcore uh in terms of your financial support so be a part of it take politics seriously.com one dollar gets you on the team that also gets you the custom rss feed these episodes come out quicker on the custom rss feed than they do on apple or spotify or any podcatcher honestly because they all scrape apple usually spotify doesn't but most all of them scrape apple uh of course three dollars three dollars gets you two bonus episodes one on monday one on thursday great week to be a part of the three dollar club i feel because on Monday, I think we're going to have the announcement over the weekend, the VP announcement over the weekend. And on Monday, you are either going to see me totally take credit for the fact that I've been uh, on this Kamala Harris train forever, or you will hear a shattered, broken man whose entire world has fallen down around him. Either way, it's going to be worth the $3. So head on over there if you want that. Ten bucks gets your name read right at the end of the show. And of course, the donor class, I raise a crystal goblet to you fine fellows. If you want to join the team, it is just that simple. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com where you can be a part of the action. And I thank each and every one of you for supporting any way you can. Our guest today is Jamie Cohen. He's a digital culture expert focusing on the work of memes and cultural borderlands of the internet and real life. You can follow Jamie at New and Digital on Twitter. Spell that one out. And you can follow the project he co-produces called Digital Void at digitalvoid.media. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. All right, so this is very, very exciting for me, mostly because, uh, obviously, as a child of the internet and somebody who does a <laughs> podcast that uh, looks at a more irreverent take on politics, memes are such a large part of it. Uh, so let me, normally we go a little meta at the beginning, but I, wa I want to kind of drill down a little bit uh, uh, to start things off. What's the oldest political meme? Wow. Uh, that would probably go way back. The oldest political meme would probably literally go back to the origin of meme itself, back to ancient Greece. And so it would be some snarky messages potentially graffitied on the wall. Back in ancient history, when political seasons were occurring, um, politicians would literally, uh, we call it graffiti today, but they would put uh, broadsides on people's houses and often uh, embed snarky messages to kind of illuminate what the specific uh, things they're doing, as in what's their policies and, and work. So that's probably the oldest, but a meme in its current context sure. is post-1976, is post-Richard uh, Dawkins, because meme, the term we use, is a neologism made up by Richard Dawkins that's developed from mimesis, the ancient Greek term of replication. But in the modern terms, uh, meme is more along the lines of uh, like a cultural virus or a, a mind virus of some sort. So that's the meme that uh, Richard Dawkins talks about. Sure. So our probably our political memes, if I were to call the most popular of the time, would probably be Reagan's video, It's Morning Again in America. 
That so, is so, so the, 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 the commercial, the, the, yeah. the idea. So that's, that's the one thing, I guess, when we're looking at the broader historical context, I, I really am curious about where we're kind of drawing those lines. Like, like right. is it just the thing that we remember? Is it something that we remember and repeat to each other? Mm-hmm. Is it just the virality that really defines a meme? Well, three of those things combined. The meme most importantly needs to be remembered. But in order for it to be a meme, it needs to be replicable. So it needs to be something that's so part of our mental memory that our long-term memory allows us to overwrite other memories with it. In other words, when you hear a certain phrase, you can actually hear the meme instead of the reality of the phrase. Your brain overwrites it using the memetic virality of it. And we could see that in the most recent... um, what was it, Project Lincoln or Lincoln Projects yeah. Morning Again parody yeah. of that? And they only knew how to do that because of the meme that had come from the 80s. So, I mean, but that that, that wouldn't be a parody. They're just taking the, the beats of the original commercial and then so that's, inverting that's them? A, that's a really good question. Where does satire and parody sit within memetics? Um, yeah. That it kind of is all derivative of that. I mean, memetics themselves are any type of mind virus that is usable. And so I think that would be more of a parody, um, but it depends on how broad you're using the term meme. In mine, my terminology and when I use it, I use it in terms of portable portability. In other words, a media artifact that you could share with other people. So if it's got portability, that's more of the memes that we talk about when we talk about internet memes. So it's usually a graphic, yeah, short video or GIF. Yeah, that's there was a, a me and uh, my wife and a, a one of her coworkers were. We wound up meeting each other. This is going to sound like a weird brag now that I actually think about it. We're in Japan. And so we're, we're talking yeah. to these people and it's a bunch of Japanese language speakers. And we're trying to go back and forth on uh, uh, Google Translate. And at some point, uh, it comes up with we're trying to explain to them meme, what a meme oh, is from wow. English to Japan. Mm-hmm. And the best thing we could come up with, because our, our my, my wife's coworker, new Japanese memes. And so he's trying to show yeah. them memes that they would probably recognize. The oldest of which was apparently a glitching Ronald McDonald was apparently a very early Japanese internet oh. meme. But the best no that kidding. we could come up with was internet joke. That was the only mm-hmm. thing that that really kind of translated and landed on a level that they seemed to grok these uh, 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 poor uh, electrical engineers from Yokohama that were also <laughs> getting blitzed like we were. But... Uh, <laughs> I guess it's it's hard for me now because when we think of political memes specifically, it does seem to be satire weaponized or yeah. a, a, a very, very, very pointed, often crueler than you would be able to articulate with words kind of, uh, of just broadsides, you know, via graphics and stuff like that. Is is that consistent with what your research is? I think that's exactly exactly, uh, accurate. There is, so to the the meaning that you um, kind of derive from the the international, like, translation, it is an internet joke, but it's meant for only the people that get it. So, and then to speak to weaponization, that's in our very current status of memes because those are just dog whistle memes now. So the weaponization leaves the obvious point, leaves the the uh, er- entry of everyone getting it. It makes it very nuanced to the point where 
you could only really understand it if you you could hear it or you understand what those inside jokes actually are. And I, I think you're right, though, in the idea of where that comes from. I can't remember the actual words of Anonymous's slogan at one point, but it was something along like the lines of all of us. None of us are as cruel as all of us or something like yeah. that. And uh, uh, let me see if I can look it up. None of us are <laughs> cruel. Um, just so I can make sure I say. Sure. No, that that's probably Be a good double check. Yeah, this is so the motto of Anonymous, because none of us are as cruel as all of us. And the reason why I use Anonymous as a source here is because a lot of the memes we have now come to know and love come from 4chan, have yeah. come from the meme factories of those <laughs> very, you know, kind of gross places where I always tell people when I talk about 4chan, don't go there because you literally cannot unsee things. Yes, <laughs> so yes. It's just not a place that you want to go if you have uh, you want to keep your mental health. So let's let's actually go back and, and talk about some of the origins there, because mm -hmm. I, I've understood as somebody who grew up with the Internet, as I did, that message boards literally are the building blocks of the Internet. If, if we look back at, you know, mm -hmm. aside from just basic file trading, the first time that there was any kind of socialization or culture around message boards. And Absolutely. certainly those have kind of led the way in building the broader culture, not only on social media, but in the, the rest of the Internet. What are some of the influential political uh, uh, boards aside from 4chan? Absolutely. Good question. And you're absolutely 100 percent right. If you go into any histories, uh, that's my that when I talk about the borderlands, I talk about the histories, the techno cultures yeah. that have existed from black techno cultures to cyber cultures in the 90s and all of them have a culture inside their BBS boards, all the way back to when we had, um, what was that dial-up? They had to dial into a modem. It was like the- uh, AOL, Prodigy? Previous to that, it was like, a, you, literally you had to dial the modem's number. I can't remember the, oh, name, the yeah. name of it, I, ICP board or something. Um, those were really the formations of inside jokes because of shorthand, because tech speak, TXT speak, yeah. uh, me, emojis, they are all derived from the idea that we didn't have enough space to make our messages come across. So aside from 4chan, which is really a, a, a vestige of this this millennia, the previous ones would really be like um, some of the original BBS boards that eventually developed into Reddit. And yeah. so Reddit is really the source of a lot of our political know-how of what's going on in today's current context. Yeah, uh, which is <laughs> funny because Reddit is – I mean, I guess none of the boards were necessarily the smartest places. They were the places where people talked the most. And right, I, I guess course. that's that's kind of where yeah. you – that's where you get it. And that's really what makes 4chan special from a technical perspective is – and if you are not aware of 4chan, again, please follow Jamie's uh, lead and don't go there <laughs> unless you signed a waiver uh, uh, and, and understand <laughs> that you were getting into this yourself. But – what technically makes it special is it, it is an anonymous board, meaning you you can't know who the other people are. And so therefore, it allows for the the mimetic creation to be that much freer, which, of course, right. leads to horrifying things. But yes. also it's very rapid and uh, the the things that are the best are found very quickly because it's being things are being tried on a level that you won't see when even you have to have the penalty of creating a burner account if, if something goes wrong or bad. Right. Language, all language and all culture is created through codification. In other words, we have to agree that something is new or something is acceptable culturally. 
And to exactly what you said, the fact that everyone's anonymous, that means they could offer up new versions of culture. And those new versions of culture can then be codified because it's a, it literally, 4chan is, I'm talking specifically about a space called random. Uh, that's where the meme factory is. Yeah. And that type of space is runs in the attention economy. If you post something or a meme of any type and no one comments on it, after 10 pages of that message board, it purges. It just disappears. In other words, if it doesn't get engagement, it's gone. So we have to, people who create uh, new words, neologisms, really need to create a codification of that language by having engagement with it, which keeps it at the top of the board, and then eventually becomes usable. So it is that that process of language making and culture making actually does take place inside these spaces. And the active anonymous behavior is part and parcel of how language in this case is being made because there's no credit, you know, and that's kind of nice when you yeah. think about it. Yeah, this isn't about clout. This is about yeah. just like you are the only person who knows that you've made multiple hits is yourself. Right. And, you exactly. Know, yeah, that is that is the uh, I mean, it is a very interesting kind of reflection of uh, self-confidence when you think about it. Right. Uh, all right. When it comes to political memes, mm -hmm. there obviously we have become at least as it's been represented online, although I think it would probably be safe to say that many people at least listening to a politics podcast would agree with this in real life as well. We've become much more politically focused. And while even 4chan, which was mostly known for edgelords and uh, possibly like some script kitty hacker culture in maybe the early aughts, has over the last 10 years become something that is very political and very mm -hmm. uh, identified for its strain of uh, a political thought that often agrees with president and then candidate Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, is that something that you've seen amongst broader meme creation as a whole, or are we just focusing on these memes more because politics has become something that people are more interested in? Uh, it's definitely the former in that one. It is you're you're absolutely right. So a lot of what you trace of modern political memes really d comes from the Gamergate era. What happened at that point was really interesting in terms of a, a good a good analysis of existential crises, social pressures, and the mainstream media all interacting simultaneously, and the disenfranchisement of the young white male in these uh, digital spaces that felt the space that they felt. And the quote I often use is sometimes when sometimes equality seems like oppression to those who have never seen that type of thing before. And so that type of uh, move towards equality or the idea of moving towards more social justice felt like a societal pressure. And these message boards were actually the only place in which they could feel the space, the safe space to express themselves. Politics, we are not. No one's exempt from politics. You know that every every move we make yeah. is political. So. I think they became politically awakened, so to speak, through um, specific ideologues that really dominated those spaces. And they dominated these spaces because they weren't dominating them in mainstream media. Mainstream media was very, uh, still is to this point, speaks to a general audience. And when it does so, it doesn't speak to these niche communities. And so these niche influencers, let's call them YouTubers, or let's call them influencers or edgelords, they seem to have figured out how to prioritize a specific political ideology in these spaces, converting a lot of these young men into politically minded um, uh, 
meme makers, edgelord, meme lords, <laughs> these, these sure. kids that were really yes. out there to get more clout because they had become politically awakened to what they felt was an existential crisis, although that's a catacresis, so to speak, meaning that it it's a word that doesn't make sense when used. So it's like marginalized white or something like that. Like these words don't make sense. But when deployed in charismatic online communities, sense making doesn't need an objective reality to to do that. It just needs an agreement or codification by other community members. All right. Let, let me also I'm just realizing now that we, I, I should probably take a real quick time out and explain some sure. of the lingo here for folks yeah, who are not, who are like not caught up. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm the one who started it. So. Obviously, an influencer is probably the easiest one for folks that are not totally dialed in for internet culture. That is somebody yeah. that is a popular online personality. We often think of them as selling ads or something on their Instagram or Twitter or or whatever. Uh, but in general, broadly speaking, it's just somebody that's popular on a platform. Uh, Edgelord is somebody that is more of a lifestyle or at least a phase for many wherein you are saying the thing that you know is going to get the reaction almost purely for the fact that you are saying the thing that is going to get the reaction and that is its own genre meme lord i guess would just be somebody who makes a lot of memes and is known yep. for making memes uh, mm -hmm. But 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 there we go that that is that is our our, our glossary so far for folks who are not into lead speak I always forget, like I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm obviously very online as this is my study, but I often do forget like these terms are very, very foreign to the majority of people. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, so so therefore, there is just a uh, post Gamergate, which, again, and if you're, if you're not familiar with that, go read. It. I'm not going to do the full thing on that. But basically, no, it was a big it. cataclysm within video game culture and video game coverage uh, uh, about whether or not. Well, I, mean, I don't know. That's actually more complicated. Just Google it. Whatever. Yes. Uh, yeah. Just know that it was a big, gigantic thing, uh, uh, specifically in coverage. But from my perspective, as somebody who is disconnected from video games, yet very plugged into politics, I had looked at Gamergate as this very weird uh, circle of violence between online communities and the media like mm -hmm. and obviously they're playing on things that are real they're playing on emotions that are real but there mm -hmm. are two never-ending sources of noise and that's the internet and media right media being the old guard even if it's ported to uh, uh the internet side and message boards being this native uh a uh, uh, force but but you're saying that that even if if that was the case the fact that that made as much noise as it did and was at the tip of people's tongues for as long as it was just became irresistible to political forces and politicians specifically. That's correct. Yeah, that and I think your, your definition of that is incredible because it really is about amplification. So when users started becoming recognizable for their stances, that that gave them the ability to kind of like create new media, like that was their new space. And I think at the time, to be honest, like I was still a bit naive about the entire thing. I, I started um, a college program. I started a new media program at a, at a college and uh, created a, a state degree. Literally people walk around with a degree I came up with. Um, nice. Yeah, it was kind of, it's still kind of cool. It's still a little overwhelming to know that, that I did that. And a lot of the meme studies at the time were still kind of like framed in that utopian vision of like, oh, things, we could use the internet for good. Um, and then, 
when I think the shift also happened at that same moment, because I think there's just a series of coincidences that come together, not just Gamergate and the, the, the stressors between mainstream media and internet media, but also the way that um, culture was using memes. So I think at that exact same moment, Obama had used um, a bunch of YouTube influencers to kind of help him sell the ACA. And yeah. at that point, he used the Doge meme, the dog, um, if you don't know Doge, that's a fun one to look up. Yeah. Um, the Doge meme as an ad for the ACA. And it kind of like was a very, it, it was like poli po a politician, someone who was um, polarizing in, in terms of like the communities that were online, um, using their culture to sell things that they may not agree with. And I think that exacerbated a lot of like what happened too. I think it was just a, a, a matter of a lot of things happening at the exact same moment. And that led me to my study that I co-authored the first peer-reviewed paper on Pepe the Frog as a result. Hey! Yeah, which is kind of crazy, too. Like, that's that's kind of fun. It was a fun paper where we kind of anticipated, my co-author Matt Applegate and I, uh, we anticipated that the layering of memes would eventually lead to a corporatization of memes, that memes would just simply be, like, product. We anticipated that, not realizing what we wrote, anticipated the appropriation of Pepe by the alt-right. <laughs> so we actually did write the framework for it without actually knowing it. And then now we look back and we're like, wow, we, we were right, unfortunately, but we were also wrong. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's funny because Obama really, to me, is the first, like, he is the test case for a lot of internet stuff. And and oh, I yeah. think that there's a... There, there is there is a a desire to say he's the first internet president when it's like yes technically i think he was the first president that people that were largely on the internet were happy to spread memes about social media had come of age enough that that was a thing like obama is your new bicycle and hillary clinton is mom jeans were things that were like out in 2000 and and 8 right if not 2007 mm -hmm. right uh but it really isn't until Trump where things become fully online. Like, right. like Donald Trump very much, and I don't think he necessarily was meme savvy. No. I do think that he uh, was tapping into an audience that was very meme savvy. And uh, uh, now all of a sudden there is this kind of gulf between you you have like the whole like the 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 left camp meme meme which is a meme mm -hmm. about how you know liberal memes are not as funny as conservative memes or whatever mm -hmm. and part of that is i i think that there was that this is kind of like a nativist versus occupying element uh, uh at least from the side of the trump supporters that that they feel yeah. like they are they are uh, uh, they never had a place in mainstream media. So when mainstream media or mainstream media derivative properties came onto the internet, it was always theirs to fight. They were the enemy from the moment they they, they landed. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly accurate. I mean, that's from the from the beginning of the uh, the Trump presidency when he came down that um, golden elevator. Escalator. He came yeah. down as a iconoclast. You know, it's kind of like to to do that, and the internet communities saw that as a desirable thing he I, I agree i don't think trump knows i don't think he knows much about memes at all which is why he continually pumps out these dog whistle memes it's all the time and it's like one of these things where it's like is he aware of the dog whistle personally i think he is i think it's just kind of him put, uh, poking the bear which is in his opinion the laughter mainstream media um but that is um 
I think what you bring up is exactly accurate, which is that this the mainstream media didn't really give voice to um, the people who were already excluded from it. And to be honest, excluded for somewhat good reasons. In, in many ways, they were bigoted or sometimes they had these racist ideologies. So they weren't in the mainstream media, but that allowed them to previously occupy, like you say, and kind of create a, a nativist space on the internet with their own language. And so the memes that came from 2015 to present already come with the the savviness, so to speak, this the edge of internet speak. So it's already speaking internet before yeah. it gets to the, the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting because it, it, to me dovetails, uh, exactly with, you know, a, a resentment that, uh, conservatives have had with mainstream media for mm -hmm. decades now, like yeah. from, from mm -hmm. the point of like, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, AM radio and message boards were kind of like, that is, that is like, you know, a grandfather, father, grandson, <laughs> you know, there is, there is this, this lineage of, uh, okay, they won't let us on television. They won't let us in their newspapers. So we're going to create our own newsletters and we're going to create our own AM radio. And, right. and, and the message boards were kind of another, another side of that. Now, let me ask you this, because this is something that really does kind of annoy me, or at least uh, is a, a an example of the fact that mainstream media still doesn't understand memes or at least even the way to talk about them is mm -hmm. this this weird thing that happens when you know Donald Trump posts a meme on his Twitter right and yeah. God mm -hmm. knows where he gets them somebody sends them to him he thinks they're funny and he posts them on his Twitter um which is probably in and of itself something worth talking about because that's a pattern of behavior that is very normal to us that no president in history has ever done before. Ever done, right? uh, mm -hmm. But we have mainstream media coverage of it saying doctored footage, right? Or doctored photo. Like right. is how far off do you think we are? Cause like, look, you can find the meme repugnant. You can find the meme stupid, but say, the meme is repugnant. The exactly. meme is stupid. Not just is doctor, doctored photo. Trump circulates doctored video. Yes, it's an edited video because that's what <laughs> memes are. That's right. They're repeatable, replicable, altered images. You are speaking directly to my heart right here because I, I'm trying to do meme literacies. And the biggest wall between memes and meme literacy is that people still think of memes as irreverent, funny cat images or shareable minion memes that are on the web. And that, it, it reduces the embedded nature of what Trump is doing down to those that reductionist concept, which is like horrible. Because I mean, the mainstream media is scared, to be honest, they, they don't use the word lie. Uh, they don't use the word racism very often, even though he's spe specifically lying in many cases and, and obliquely being racist sometimes. And it's like, those types of things they don't say due to slander and libel laws and restrictions on First Amendment. But when it comes down to the, the specific examples of memes that I don't I to be honest, I don't know why they don't do it, aside from the fact that they just don't know enough about memes to speak about them in case they get questions back. And so they'll say doctored images like literally a, a CNN logo getting body slammed by Trump on another wrestler. That's yeah, yeah of course, that's doctored. But that's a weaponized piece of media inciting violence to followers against the media. Like that is literally a push against the First Amendment rights. That's the dog whistle in it. And it's not even like quiet anymore. That dog whistle is like barking. You could hear it everywhere. You hear all the dogs getting mad about that. 
And that I don't know that one. That one I felt. I mean, it's the idea that Republicans don't like CNN. Is yeah, that's is pretty common. As old as you know, I mean, yeah. you know, as old as CNN. <laughs> I, like, I, I think that there are probably Rush Limbaugh parody songs that are older than most yeah. of the people listening to this about you know how how terrible the mainstream media is now, unfair they are. So it's like in a heightened. It, this wasn't you know a uh, uh, footage of a, a war torn area where somebody was sure. getting a brick thrown at them. It right. was literally WrestleMania. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I actually have less problems with that meme than I have with some of the other dog whistle memes that are a little more embedded with nuance. There was um, Carpe Donctum was just recently removed from Twitter, but yeah. there was other memes and, that and were he, pushed. And he is, out. by the way, I think he made that that uh, CNN meme, but he I is think he did. among. Yeah, that was his. Thing. <laughs> among among the elite, since you've now learned meme lord, uh, 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 probably the the uh, uh, elite meme lord and uh, uh, the one that was retweeted by uh, uh, President Trump the most. Yeah, there's memes that he'll find that I think are more crowdsourced that I think are a little bit more dangerous because he doesn't really get them, but the audience does. So there's some very dangerous memes out there like the helicopter meme or uh, the, the snowplow meme. And the snowplow meme I'll use, for example, was tweeted by Trump or retweeted by Trump, where it was a Trump, it was a, just a photo of a plow, and the plow itself just said uh, "pushing snowflakes, uh, Trump 2020." And it's to to a user, yeah, that's literal. That's an actual literal meme. But it also is an unfortunate trend of protesters being hit by cars. Like that's there is embedded nuance into that, which I'm to be without asking Trump directly. I don't know if he knows about that dog whistling in there, but I'm positive that the audience knows that. Well, let me let me ask you this then, because we we, we started this off, and I, I totally agree with it, that part of what makes a meme is that it is the most efficient way to start you off on a train of thought, right? Yeah. Like, that that's, that's what makes it viral, is that you can repeat it, you can send it, you can post. Like, uh, there's been one, a non-political meme that's been going around uh, the internet and, and ended up in one of my group chats of, like, good to see Nick Cage wearing his mask out while shopping. And it's just a picture <laughs> of John Travolta. Because, and if you don't know what that means, then you're not getting it, right? But if you've seen the movie Face Off then you know that Nick Cage and John Travolta switch or the are surgically created as each other. And so that's a mask that, that Nick Cage is wearing in the movie face off. Mm -hmm. uh, but we don't all have the same experiences and we right. don't all take things uh, uh, the same way. And especially mm -hmm. in politics where we live in totally different worlds. Like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yesterday and now I guess I have to run this uh, interview today. Uh, uh, but yesterday during the bar hearings, I'm watching that and live streaming it. And it's like, you know, these are literally two different hearings. There's the the, the Democrats are going to monologue in, and bars effectively like a, a, an IG photo shoot where they mm -hmm. get to, you know, have their sound bites and their campaign commercials. And then the Republicans are going to flatter bar and ask him about Russia. Like, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and that's all there is. There is no, uh, really, I mean, in my opinion, much push in the media or in our, uh, our politicians' minds to have any kind of shared truth. So if a meme is something where you're giving them two words so you and your head can repeat the next 15, isn't it almost, uh, uh, 
inevitable that those 15 words are going to be different in the mind of a a, a liberal person versus a conservative person? Yep. I completely agree. I think memes themselves are vehicles of these, what we call like media Rorschach tests. You know, it's like, however we see them now is just, we're such a polarized space that memes used to be shared, you know, that they really were like these things which were community based. And now they're so partisan that it's like hard to even experience other memes at this point. I, I purposely follow far right meme pages, far left meme pages. I have, I just have to just to see yeah. what they are. And they're, they don't even distinctly re- resemble each other. Any no, longer. no, they're, I mean, they, they are on, on totally different planets. <laughs> yeah. Like there are, uh, uh, and, and, you know, if there's one thing that I think is consistent amongst the internet is that it does often, you know, bring out inhumanity. It, it brings mm-hmm. out dehumanization. <laughs> there is, yeah. there is no doubt about that. And and memes often are kind of expressions of raw emotion. All right, one mm-hmm. last uh, thought, and then we'll get you out of here. And this is sure. kind of my larger internet philosophy. Sure. That the internet killed our monoculture. We used to have, by way of gatekeepers and a limited amount of media delivery channels, some semblance of this is popular, this is not popular. This is a good person, this is a bad person. And then, of course, there's undercurrents and and, and undergrounds where maybe you lionize the villains or hate or demonize the heroes. But in general, there was a starting point. And then... The internet comes along. I usually use Napster as a, a, a way to kind of draw a dividing line, mostly because that fractured a gigantic gatekeeper industry. But yeah. we've since seen it with all these other things. And to me, what I watch is our Pangea drifting slowly apart. And therefore, the memes will always become more localized. We're We're, yeah. we're going to have... The, the 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 doge memes and the I can has cheeseburgers are going to be maybe more powerful but less common. Do you think that that's uh, uh that that's that's consistent with where you're at? I hundred percent. I think by the way, you speak in such beautiful, fluid, and languid terms. I love. The, I'm gonna have I you back tomorrow. This is great. You're like the best yeah. guest. I love this. Yeah, uh, I, uh, <laughs> but you're you're in my opinion. I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think what we're going to see in the future, just because I can't repeat anything you've said without agreeing it completely. So I think what we're going to see in the future is much more uh, uh, broken up internet. I think we're going to see um, smaller communities and smaller communities until we're into an editorial version of the internet where everybody's getting kind of their own version of the feeds. You know, everyone's feed is so significantly uh, unique that there won't be a way of really even sharing the internet space at all. And I think you're right with this too, is that once we saw the the internet starting to fracture, it was, I think there was a point where we could have said, oh, okay, well, now that we're watching this fracturing take place, what could we do about it? But I think the fracturing is very monetizable. I think it's platforms oh, yeah. enjoy that because it's very easy to advertise to the unique individual than a collective. And so our collective media environment of four to 10 channels where we all got the same information was too broad based for specific advertising. So. In the future, I, I really do think there's um, there's a book, uh, Fall, uh, by uh, Neil Stevenson, which he talks about the editorial internet, in which the, in the in the 2020s, we in his fiction he writes that each of us get our own like kind of subscription newsletter based internet, and it just feeds us specifics to that. And I think if that's the case, I don't think we'll be able to share broad stream broad memes at all anymore. I think they'll just be unique, tiny little communities. 
Well, uh, uh, hopefully, uh, at least part of those tiny little communities continue to go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com and subscribe to this podcast. But uh, uh, in the meanwhile, we would like to thank our guest, Jamie Cohen, of course, a digital culture expert focusing on memes and cultural borderlands of the Internet in real life. You can follow Jamie at uh, New and Digital on Twitter and follow the project he co-produces called Digital Void at DigitalVoid.media. Thank you very much, Jamie. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really great time. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. And that's going to wrap it up for us today. Another big uh, thank you to our guest, Talking Memes. Thank you to everybody who supports us, including the Titanic $10 tier. Modesto's own Logan Cisco, NH Blumkin, Chad, Headphones Neil, Water Ice Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Frozen Summer, Zach and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley, Steven, your boy Craig, TripleFilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D Laser, I Pooped My Pants. Just another pilot, Alex Mitchell, Severio, Martin, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Spawn, Jerry, Andres, Archie. Jay Milius, The Jen, The Crap in My Pants, Olin and Angela, DL, Brian, IPoopMyPants.com, Miranda, Robert, Glenn Wolf, Brand Chili Scoop, Dustin Richard, Random Complexity, Jay Pink, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? Oh, you head on over, folks. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. So I want to let you know, if you have never seen my Twitch streams, if you've never seen them, well, now's the time to start. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. I'm live four days a week, 10 a.m. Pacific time. That is 1 p.m. Eastern time. Usually go for around two hours. But we are revamping things, friends. Things are getting a little interesting. Visually, we're, we're trying to do a few different things. Uh, effectively, here's what I found out. We're not traveling for the rest of the year. And I'm so so bummed about it that I'm channeling all of my creative energy into that Twitch stream. So, if you uh, want to just listen to it, Twitch uh, has a great app. It has an audio-only feature. You can set it. So, don't follow anyone else. Just follow me, and that means it'll effectively be your jury radio app. It'll just let you know when I'm going live. You can hit audio-only. Boop. Listen wherever you want. And that's stuff that doesn't have a podcast version. So that is exclusive to you, exclusive to people who listen live. If you want to watch live, I'm guaranteeing you I'm going to make it worth it. We are revamping our entire set so I'm not sitting down anymore. And I'll tell you what, when I'm standing up, it's a different me. It's a different me. Uh, and I'm pumped. I'm pumped to bring it to everybody. So check it out. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. You want to email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Tell you what, I thought I was going to get Cuomo emails last week. Boy, when I talked about the Cuomo tweets that I got, did the Cuomo emails come in. So we're going to talk about that a little bit on Friday. And anything else you want to bring up, including anything that we talked about here today, well, send it on in, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You want to follow me on uh, Instagram, on Twitter, at Justin R. Young as well. Till next time, though. Politics.
This is your old pal Justin Robert Young telling you that some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics, but this is the only show that talks about all Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>